Hey everybody, welcome back to Poem Peeps. We're really excited today to be joining you again, and we're diving into a new top consult series, and we want to do a bunch of discussion on plural diseases. So today we're starting with a top consult on a very common topic that you see in the hospital, which is plural effusions and sort of a general approach to that issue. Monty, I'm very pumped. How are you doing? Hey, Ferf, going great. I'm so excited for this series and for us to head back to the Pacific Northwest and the University of Washington. We are joined today by two special guests. And first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mira John. Mira received her medical degree from Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans and completed internal medicine residency at ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. She's currently a second year pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Washington. And Mary, it's so glad to have you on the show today. We appreciate you coming on Palm Peeps. Thank you for having us. Excited to join y'all today. Yeah, absolutely. Next, uh, also from University of Washington, we have Eileen Lynch. Uh, Eileen is a clinical instructor at the University of Washington. She completed her fellowship at UW and now works clinically on the pulmonary consult service and in critical care. Uh, welcome to Palm Peeps. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Glad to have you both join us today. And before we get started um, with some great cases and scenarios, I'd just like to remind everyone that this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice and the opinions are our own and do not reflect our employers and the cases referenced today are HIPAA compliant and some details may have been changed to protect the identity of our patient. So team, we have our first consult of the day. So we have a 70-year-old woman with a past medical history of mitral stenosis heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, who's admitted for progressive dyspnea on exertion and hypoxemia, secondary to an acute decompensated heart failure um, exacerbation. Her chest imaging shows pulmonary edema along with new bilateral moderate-sized pleural effusions. The team today is consulting us for recommendations for managing the hypoxemia as well as the pleural effusions. So Mira, I know you get this consult frequently, and before you take a look at imaging for patients where you're considering an effusion, what information from a history can clue you into the diagnosis of pleural effusion? Yeah, so some patients may be completely asymptomatic, but those with symptoms may have shortness of breath, orthopnea, cough, and wheezing. Some patients with inflammatory effusions may also complain of chest pain, fevers, and chills. If the patient is symptomatic, your relevant history for the chief complaint may have allowed you to identify some predisposing factors for this pleural effusion, even before you get imaging, such as heart or liver or kidney failure. However, most patients that I see for pleural effusion have already had some form of chest imaging and the presence of an effusion is known. Once I know the patient has a diagnosis, I'll typically obtain additional history to really drill down on their risk factors for a new pleural effusion. That's great, Mira. You know, I think it's also worth mentioning, it's just really important to get a sense of chronicity for these patients. You know, it can help you distinguish between etiologies sometimes, right? Like, so an, a bacterial empyema is going to be a little bit more acute, but something like TB pleuritis or malignancy might be like a more subacute in, in uh, development of the pleural effusion. But I also think it comes into play when you're thinking about what therapeutic options you're going to use and a therapeutic thoracentesis or drainage. And I know we're definitely going to get into that later. Additional things I think about, you know, are identifying the effusion as unilateral or bilateral helps me think about the potential etiology of it. Mira, do you have a similar approach to your approaching a differential for a patient with a new effusion? When evaluating pleural effusions, I also ask, is it bilateral or is it unilateral? Exactly as you mentioned as well as considering if it's new or recurrent. 
This helps me frame things, especially with the need to sample or resample fluid. We know that bilateral effusions usually result from a systemic process causing an increase in the pulmonary hydrostatic pressure gradient, or a decrease in the oncotic pressure gradient, or both. This includes diseases like I mentioned earlier, heart failure, liver failure, kidney disease, as well as malnutrition leading to low albumin levels. So in bilateral effusions, I will ask about symptoms such as lower extremity swelling, abdominal swelling, and weight gain. Of course, these are generalities. Patients with bilateral pleural effusions can have inflammatory causes, and patients may also have a unilateral effusion due to volume overload. So I still try to keep a broad differential. Yeah, absolutely. I think that thinking about that general approach to things always helps me too. And certainly seeing bilateral makes me think more about these systemic uh, portions. I also love that you sort of got into the physiology, right? Is this just pure uh, uh, physiology of hydrostatic versus oncotic pressures? Or in the case of inflammatory, there's something that's sort of changing the nature of the barrier. So there may be something else driving things. So that's great. Uh, I know that you mentioned many of your patients will already have some chest imaging uh, at the time of your consult, and I think that's the same for all of us. So, Eileen, and I, I we're, we're hoping that you could discuss uh, what you expect to see on a chest x-ray with a pleural effusion uh, and, you know, what features that you're paying attention to. Yeah. So, fluid on chest x-ray usually looks white, and I think of the fluid-filled heart and aorta as other examples of this. Effusions that are free-flowing typically accumulate in the most dependent part of the chest, so in a small effusion, all you may see is what's called a meniscus sign or rounding of the costophrenic angle. In larger effusions, the hemidiaphragm might be completely obscured. But of course, these findings are seen in patients who are upright, where the diaphragm is in the most dependent part of the chest. In patients who are semi-upright, a pleural effusion may look like an ombre effect on the affected side, where the gradient goes from more white at the bottom to less white at the top. And in patients who are recumbent, it might just look like a homogeneous haziness. Lastly, chest x-ray can also sometimes give you some clues as to the cause of the effusion. For example, there may be evidence of a pneumonia or pulmonary mass on chest x-ray, or if the cardiac is silhouette, you might think about heart failure. Oh, I love that. And I love the positioning. I feel like I was talking to a doc who talked to me about x-rays before the time of CT scans and how he would like have an effusion x-ray and then lay the patient on their side and then on their back and sort of try to make diagnoses based on how it changes, which I think we do less nowadays. And again, our patient had bilateral, moderate-sized pleural effusions with progressive dyspnea, but without any infectious symptoms. Christina, I'm wondering what your initial approach would be with this patient. Thanks, Mira. Yeah, and I think, as you said, you know, in patients with bilateral pleural effusions, you know, I usually think of potentially more heart failure or cirrhosis or renal failure as etiologies. And specifically in this patient, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any symptoms of infection and appears to have evidence of heart failure on exam. So I think it's reasonable to defer, you know, a diagnostic thoracentesis in this case and monitor the effusions for improvement with volume removal and treatment of our underlying etiology. Thanks, Christina. And we also agreed and recommended optimizing diuresis for the patient. However, despite aggressive diuresis of about 10 kilos, the patient continued to have persistent hypoxemia and pleural effusions. And in addition, had no evidence of volume overload on exam. The team is now asking for consideration for thoracentesis. She's not on any anticoagulation. She has normal platelets and normal coags. Dave, I'm curious. When considering doing a thoracentesis on a patient, what are the general risks and benefits that you consider? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Like even just the nature of considering the risks and benefits, because oftentimes I think we in medicine have something we can do and we just do it right to get fluid. But uh, I think we always have to think about what we're going to get out of it uh, and what the risks for the patients are. You know, I think uh, for patients with a pleural effusion, there are really two main benefits that I'm considering with the thoracentesis. And the first is sort of symptomatic relief. Um, They could be hypoxemic. They could have just sort of chest discomfort. They could have a lot of uh, shortness of breath. And maybe that'll get better if I pull out a big effusion. Uh, And then I also think about the diagnostic evaluation I'm going to get when I get the fluid out. Uh, We're going to talk about how we analyze this fluid, but, you know, I think this can be a huge uh, boon to figuring out what's the etiology of our effusion. With that symptomatic relief, I will say I also consider, do I think that this tap is going to be a definitive solution or not? Because sometimes you drain an effusion and it just comes right back if you know that you haven't corrected any other factors. Um, and then certainly in this case where you've done some conservative management and things haven't changed uh, or improved totally, we may consider it. However, we also have to always think about the risk. So with any procedure, there are certainly some risk and we actually have to talk to our patients about that risk before we dive into it. And so, you know, I think that's for us to consider. So for Athora, you know, I think about these four P's that I always sort of discuss with them. You know, the first is a pneumothorax. This is sort of one of the most feared complications after Athora. That being said, it's generally pretty rare. I mean, the literature is somewhere between like 0.6 and 6%. I'll say that like 6%, I think is pretty high, uh, as long as you're using ultrasound and you have like a good experienced uh, operator doing it. Um, we always get a chest x-ray afterwards just to make sure, but less than 2% of the time, and I'd say probably less than 1% of the time in most experienced centers, does someone actually need like a chest tube uh, for a pneumothorax after a thora. The second thing is less of a direct risk, but it may not work. We may be doing it and not get a good amount of fluid or have a a dry tap. And, you know, this is relatively rare, but it's something we have to quote for the patient. And then there is always some pain associated with this procedure. I mean, you're piercing the skin with the needle, so there's just a little bit of pain with that. Um, But there can also be pain as we, you know, pierce through the pleura, which was highly innervated. Um, And actually, the longer an effusion's been there, the more that you can get some of that pain because the pleura sort of gets thickened and irritated. So, you know, we'll start with lidocaine as we're sort of probing through the skin and trying to get into the pleural space. Um, you know, I try to sort of inject as much lidocaine as I can. You know, I'll note that a lot of the kits don't really give you that much, maybe just bias DCs, but so I may get some extra to see if that can help us some more. Uh, and I always make sure to really try, if I know that I've gotten to the pleura, really try to uh, uh, numb around that area. And then finally, the last P that we'll talk about is sort of re-expansion pulmonary edema. We recently did a radiology rounds on this, uh, but you know, pretty rare, significantly less than 1% of the time when you pull out a lot of fluid, you may, because of the re-expansion in the lung and the change in pressure swings there, get a pulmonary edema that you have to manage afterwards. We talked about this, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about risk factors for this, swings in pleural pressure. Some people have studied looking at manometry. I don't think any of those studies actually have been super definitive uh, or helpful in saying that certain pressure swings limit this. So generally try to take out less than one and a half to two liters, depending on uh, your experience, and then stop if you notice signs that could worsen pulmonary edema uh, re-expansion with those signs being sort of chest discomfort, coughing, uh, or a real change in being able to pull out the fluid. So those are sort of the main four P's I think about. And then, you know, I haven't figured out a good way to put this last one into that P's mnemonic, 
well, maybe we can brainstorm on it. The other risk that is often quoted is hemorrhage. Um, and Mira, you mentioned some of the things that I worry about or that increase the risk of hemorrhage, like someone's on blood thinners or has low platelets. So I'm curious just about how you think about this potential risk and talk to your patients about it. In an ideal world, you'd want your patient to have normal coags, so an INR less than 1.5, be off all anticoagulants and antiplatelet medications, and have a platelet count of at least 50,000. If there is some urgency to the workup, or if there's significant risk to, say, stopping the antiplatelet or the anticoagulant therapy, we may still pr uh, proceed with the thoracentesis, recognizing that there might be a slightly higher risk for hemorrhage. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I've been in places and talked to people who in those cases will sometimes even just jump to a chest tube. And I know that can seem counterintuitive because chest tubes, you know, are a little bit bigger or maybe there's a little bit more risk of bleeding. But the benefit of it is if they do need a chest tube, eventually you're only doing one procedure as opposed to two. And if unfortunately you do have some bleeding, you have a tube in place, you know, that can uh, help you detect that early or even manage it. So that's a consideration as well. Yeah, for, that's a great point. And I've definitely seen our IP colleagues go that route if they were concerned about risk benefit um, and urgent procedure in a patient. So uh, definitely have seen chest tubes used if considered high risk for hemorrhage um, as well. So thanks for pointing that out. And I think another area that we can talk about now too is just the use of ultrasound and how it can be your friend. You know, specifically when doing a planned thoracentesis, um, you can use a vascular probe with the color Doppler modality to locate where the intercostal vasculature is, just to make sure that it's not in a surprising location. And with that, Aline, if you'd be able to walk us through your approach in general with using ultrasound to identify an area to sample pleural fluid. Yeah, so, in general, when I'm thinking about ultrasounding the lung or the pleural space, I start. I try to start and end with structures that I recognize. So I usually start by identifying the diaphragm and the underlying abdominal structures. So that's the spleen or the liver, depending on which side you're on. And then I'll move up rib space by rib space until I see normal lung. And that helps me can, uh, know where, what I'm looking at when I'm looking at it. And it get, helps me get a sense of how much fluid is there. The pleural fluid is going to be dark or anechoic, and in free-flowing effusions will be just above the diaphragm. So you'll often see the tip of the lung floating around with respiration. So that's also called the sinusoid sign. You asked me what constitutes a safe pocket, and that totally depends on the operator. And an experienced operator, they may be comfortable with one centimeter or more of fluid, as long as there's no evidence of lung or diaphragm coming into the potential field. Um, and especially if they do that under real-time ultrasound guidance. I usually feel a little better with two to three centimeters of fluid. Um, and in your uh, sort of inexperienced learners, you might aim for a pocket that has three to five centimeters of fluid over a couple of consecutive rib spaces. To add on to that, when identifying um, an area to sample, I usually start to think about how much fluid I anticipate removing during the procedure itself, which brings up the question of, you know, some I know learners may ask or some consultants may ask, you know, whether or not we should do a diagnostic or a therapeutic tap. And Aline, I wonder if you can tell us um, what your approach is with this. And as a second follow-up question, what pleural fluid studies are ones that you think we should order on the majority of of patients that we're taking pleural fluid samples from? Usually when I consent somebody for diagnostic thoracentesis, I also consent them for a therapeutic thoracentesis and just try to get off as much fluid as I can at the same time. That sometimes saves the patient from having a second procedure if, for example, the pleural fluid studies suggest that they have some 
etiology that would benefit from complete drainage. There are some situations where a purely therapeutic thor is indicated. For example, if you know why somebody has an effusion, um, like malignancy or cirrhosis, and they just need a tap for relief of their symptoms. However, if it's the first time that I'm encountering that person, I'll usually send off diagnostic studies as well. The basic workup that I order on every thoracentesis that I perform consists of a cell count and differential, bacterial stain and culture. The labs evaluate for LIGHTS criteria, so that would be serum and fluid total protein, as well as serum and fluid LDH, and the labs that we use to define what's a complex effusion if it turns out to be an exudate, so that's pH and glucose. In unilateral effusions, I'll sometimes order a cytology, depending on what I think the etiology of the effusion is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. And my initial labs might vary depending on the clinical context. So depending on what the fluid looks like, I might order triglycerides to look for a chylothorax, for example, if it's milky white, or a hematocrit if, it's look, if it looks bloody. Thanks so much, Aline. I really love your approach to both diagnostic and therapeutic thoracentesis. And Mira, I'm wondering if you can take us back to our patient and let us know uh, what the next steps were that happened with her. Overall, given the persistent effusions despite diuresis, normal coags, and an adequate pocket to sample fluid, we proceeded with the therapeutic thoracentesis. The fluid was pale yellow and clear, so we sent off all the general studies that you, rec- that you mentioned, Eileen, and the results showed a cell count of 200 with 20% PMNs, 10% lymphocytes, 70% macrophages, an LDH of 88, a total protein of 2.4, a glucose of 104, and a pH of 7.5. Serum LDH, meanwhile, was 205, and serum total protein was 6.2. So thanks, Mira. And seeing all the data that comes back when you send off studies can be very daunting, right? Because there's a lot of numbers and things to interpret. Um, and I think we all agree here that, you know, we really just try to understand if the fusion is transudative or exudative, which may help us with further management. So Mira, one of the main criteria used to help distinguish this is LIGHTS criteria. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through how you view that. Sure. So LIGHTS criteria helps you identify transudate versus exudate. The three questions to ask are, is the ratio of total protein in the pleural fluid the total protein in the serum greater than 0.5? Is the ratio of LDH in the pleural fluid over LDH in the serum greater than 0.6? And is the pleural fluid LDH greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal? If yes to any of these questions, if the pleural fluid meets any of these characteristics, then it's classified as an exudate. These criteria are highly sensitive for exudative effusions, but they misclassify about 25% of effusions with transudative etiology as exudates. One common cause for misclassification is that acute diuresis can elevate total protein levels into the exudative range. There are a few tests that can help with this. A serum pleural fluid albumin gradient greater than 1.2 suggests a transudate. Additionally, A serum pleural fluid protein gradient greater than 3.1 also suggests a transudate. Total protein in the fluid greater than 3, meanwhile, suggests an exudate. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, these are really important rules. And I'll just go ahead and say, I use the same criteria that you're using. Like I use LIGHTS criteria and I use these. I think it is important to notice that there are other criteria. There are these three test rules that just use pleural fluid analysis and ignore the serum. Um, You know, I... 
stay tuned, hint or spoiler, there'll be some future episodes on plural fusions and different types, and we may delve into these more. Um, but if for some reason you couldn't get up-to-date Serum Labs, there are these other rules that are out there. So uh, just important to know about. So putting all of it together, how did you classify this effusion and what did you recommend for treatment? Thanks, Dave. So based on the plural fluid studies, we categorized this as a transudate and recommended a more aggressive standing diuretic regimen. She's eventually discharged with a plan for outpatient eval for valve replacement. Okay, team, so we have a second consult for the day. We now have a 66-year-old man. He has a past medical history of AFib, and he's on apixaban. He has a 50-pack-year smoking history, and he was sent to the ED from clinic because he's had progressive dyspnea for multiple weeks. And on physical exam, they were doing some uh, percussion. They thought they saw her dullness, and they were worried about a pleural fusion, so they sent him in. His initial vitals did show some mild hypoxemia, and he was placed on nasal cannula, which helped his oxygenation. He had a chest x-ray, which showed a new unilateral right-sided pleural fusion based on all the things that Eileen talked to us about. And at this point, he was admitted to the medicine team, and we are now consulted for what to do next. So Eileen, uh, unlike our first consult, we now have a patient with a unilateral pleural fusion. They have a significant smoking history, raising some of their risk factors, and the sort of subacute worsening in their symptoms, uh, and now with some hypoxemia. So how does this information sort of inform your approach to this patient? Yeah, great question. So we talked about in the last case that bilateral effusions make us think of transitative causes. In contrast, unilateral effusions make me think of exudative causes. So exudative effusions are usually caused by changes in vascular permeability or impaired lymphatic drainage in the pleural space. So right away when I'm going to go see this patient, I'm going to be thinking about a differential that includes inflammatory or anatomic abnormalities that might be causing it. So That means my history is gonna include questions about infectious symptoms like cough, fever, chills, chest pain, and things about exposure history and level of immune suppression. I'll also ask questions about risk factors and symptoms of malignancy. We already mentioned the smoking history, but I'll also ask about history of other malignancies, weight loss, and hemoptysis. I'll ask about trauma or instrumentation that might make him have a predisposition to hemothorax or chylothorax or potentially a post-surgical inflammatory process. And I'll generally get a thorough review of systems that might reveal symptoms of autoimmune disease like RA. For most patients with unilateral effusions that I don't know what it's from, I'll generally lean towards thoracentesis as long as there's a reasonable pocket and no particular reason I think that they're going to be super high risk. And as we discussed earlier, this is a patient in whom I'd probably also send cytology as part of my initial workup. Before we move on with the case, I do sometimes break my unilateral effusion equals a thoracentesis rule in a patient who I has, has a known reason for volume overload and no signs or symptoms that make me think that they could have an infection or a malignancy. But those patients I generally will follow up a little bit more closely because I have a higher index of suspicion that there could be something else going on. So returning to our patient, he undergoes a bedside diagnostic and therapeutic thoracentesis with 1.5 liters of bloody appearing fluid removed. Studies return with a total protein level of 4, an LDH of 1100, pH of 7.3, and a glucose of 125. In addition, his serum LDH is 150 and serum total protein is 7. The cell count was notable for um, 8,000 with a lymphocyte predominance, and cultures and cytology are still currently pending. So that, you know, I think at this point, the team's really asking us, how do we interpret these studies? And Mary, you did such a great job of interpreting our results on the first consult. So how would you go about interpreting these values? Happy to interpret. So this patient has an exudate. 
meeting all three of the criteria that we previously discussed. Pleural fluid total protein to serum total protein greater than 0.5, pleural fluid LDH to serum LDH greater than 0.6, and pleural fluid LDH greater than greater than two-thirds of the upper limit of normal. Awesome, Mira. Thank you. So, um, you know, consistent with an exudative effusion. And as you mentioned, when this occurs, I tend to think of infection or inflammation as a driving factor. And I think in this one, it's really worth noting how elevated the pleural LDH is. And in general, Mira, what does um, an elevated pleural LDH make you think of? Great question. When I see a pleural fluid of LDH greater than 1,000, I tend to think of three things. Empyema, rheumatoid pleurisy, and malignancy. One other consideration is that it can also be elevated if serial dorsentesis are performed, and this is from inflammation within the pleural space. Dave, I'm wondering what you think of the bloody appearing fluid. Should we have been concerned for a hemothorax? Yeah, it's a great question. And I feel like it comes up all the time, you know, as you're pulling fluid out and it looks a little bloody. You know, it's important to remember that just a little bit of blood in the pleural fluid can make it look very bloody. So a bloody appearance of the fluid can most often be from an inflammatory effusion. Sometimes a malignant effusion can do it. But obviously you could have a hemothorax as well. If you're clinically concerned, you can send hematocrit off of the pleural fluid. And we generally say if that's equal or above about 50% of the serum hematocrit, then we're worried that there actually is bleeding into the uh, pleural space, and this could be a hemothorax. You know, a good bedside test you can do with that too is just to let the pleural fluid sit there and see if it clots. You know, even really bloody fluid that it's just uh, from an exudative effusion is not going to clot. But if it's real blood, you'll start getting small clots in that right as well. In this case, I'm probably more concerned of an inflammatory process, and I do always want to make sure I send off cytology if I have blood-tinged or bloody-appearing pleural fluid, because I want to make sure that there's not going to be a, a malignancy there. So, Monty, what are you thinking about with a lymphocyte predominance in the cell count of the pleural fluid for this patient? And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the cell diff, because I think that's so important in a test that we should definitely get on every patient, as Aline mentioned earlier. And I'll try to break it down by three kind of big categories or buckets. So the first I look at is the, the percentage of lymphocytes, the percentage of neutrophils, as well as the percentage of eosinophils. And for a lymphocyte-predominant pleural effusion, such as in our patient, that means that he um, has more than 50% cells or lymphocytes. And two things that I commonly think about with this specifically is malignancy, which has an overall sensitivity of about 60%. I also think of tuberculosis. And the third one, which I um, tend to forget about sometimes, but I think it's important for learners to be aware of, is that any long-standing effusion can be populated by lymphocytes. So something for us to consider on our differential as well for someone coming in with a more chronic effusion. The, the second bucket, as I mentioned, is going to be neutrophil. So neutrophil predominant effusion is going to be greater than 50% neutrophils. And the primary um, differential that I'm thinking about at this time is going to be a parademonic effusion as well. I think TB um, sh should also be considered. I think TB is going to be one on every on every one of these cell counts that we can that we can think of. That's what I'm going to be thinking about more of an infectious etiology. And then the third bucket is going to be an eosinophilic pleural effusion. And this is usually when um, there's more than 
um, 10% um, of eosinophils in the pleural fluid. I recently heard another lecture on this by Van Holden, who's one of the IP faculty at Maryland. And I remember this on board questions that an eosinophilic pleural effusion can um, signify recent air or blood in the pleural space. So I think a common question that, that learners may get or be exposed to specifically on a test format is someone who may have had a recent pneumothorax develops an effusion within 24 hours, the sample's fluid and it's, you know, 10 or 15% eosinophils, the underlying etiology is going to be because of recent air and our potentially blood in the pleural space. Yeah, Monte, I think I had that exact same boards question. <laughs> so appreciate yours and Van's wisdom about that. Other things to think about, though, with um, eosinophilic pleural effusions definitely include drug-induced and other um, pulmonary infarctions, as well as parasitic diseases. So I think um, in addition to the LDH and the cytology and the protein that you mentioned, Mira, I think it's also um, important, just wanted to provide a little bit of framework for looking at the cell count. Um, so our patient overall, though, we mentioned had a predominantly lymphocytic um, cell count. And I think the history that we obtained is still going to be um, overall high for malignancy in this patient. Thanks, Monty. So the primary team asks about other tests that they should order to work up their patient's new exudative effusion and if they should obtain repeat imaging. And this is a question that I often get. And in general, you know, it's important to have an approach for this. So, you know, a CT is not necessary for the characterization of the pleural space in all patients with a pleural fusion. You know, it can be very helpful for patients with a loculated pleural fusion to get a complete view of the area and see the different portions of loculation and see how complex it is. Um, but you can do that a lot of that with an ultrasound as well. The CT can also be helpful in patients where there's an underlying malignancy or some sort of anatomic abnormality or pleural disease that's suspected that's driving the effusions. So in the cases of suspected malignancy, it really might be helpful to drain the pleural space first prior to a CT and then see if there's anything underneath that that was being obscured by the fluid. Um, so I'm really thinking about if I have suspicion for something else going on in the pleural of the lung and I want to get a better view now that that fluid is in there. So putting together this patient, the thoracentesis helps with the patient's symptoms and hypoxemia and we identified an exudative effusion. A CT following thoracentesis shows a left hilar mass with mediastinal lymphadenopathy and is suspicious for lesions in the liver. Cytology eventually reveals a new diagnosis of metastatic lung adenocarcinoma and the patient is referred to oncology for further management. So team, we're getting our third and final consult for the day, and now we have a 40-year-old male with a recent diagnosis of left lower lobe pneumonia a week ago, who's presenting with worsening shortness of breath. Chest imaging shows a new large left-sided pleural effusion, and we are being consulted for further recommendations for management. So unlike our first two consults and cases, we have a patient here now with a recent pneumonia with more acute to subacute dyspnea with a new unilateral effusion on the same side as his recent pneumonia, raising the concern for infectious etiology right from the start. And I think imaging can be helpful to help differentiate the fluid as Alin alluded to earlier. So for example, on chest x-ray, effusions that are loculated may have an irregular appearance or located in a position that's not dependent Lack of these findings, though, in a chest x-ray does not mean that the effusion is not loculated, and you can really get a better sense if the effusion is free-flowing um, or loculated by getting x-rays in the left or right lateral decubitus positions and seeing if the effusion changes position with gravity as expected, or you can go to ultrasound. As Lynn alluded to earlier, the presence of septations or loculations within the fluid are finding pockets of fluid that are not dependent 
are signs suggesting the presence of a more complex effusion. So Lean, I'm curious to how you decide to proceed with sampling fluid with a simple thoracentesis versus inserting a smaller bore chest tube or pigtail catheter. Great question, Christina. I'd say that usually I will start with a thoracentesis, but there are a few cases in which I would reach for a chest tube first. And the two main reasons that I do that are one, if I think that there's a high pretest probability for an empyema. So if the patient, like in this situation, has clinical symptoms of infection and then also has a loculated or septated pleural space on imaging. The other reason is that uh, is if they have a if I have a high pretest suspicion for a hemothorax. So um, if they have a recent procedure or a recent evidence of trauma, and, and especially if there's evidence of layering densities in the fluid on CT or ultrasound. So ultimately, this patient had a thoracentesis that showed purulent appearing fluid. The cell count had 100,000 nucleated cells, and 90% of those were PMNs. The total protein was 3, the LDH was 2,000, pH of 7.0, and glucose was undetectable. So the gram staining cultures were sent and are currently pending. Um, so like our last patient, this pleural fluid analysis again reveals an exudate. As Christina mentioned, his PMN count that's elevated um, is suspicious for perinomonic effusions or empyema, and it, it kind of matches our pretest suspicion based on the patient's symptoms. So Dave, how do you use pH and glucose to interpret pleural fluid studies? Oh, this is a great question. And I feel like it comes up all the time because, you know, we get this information about an exudate. We may have some imaging suspicion, but I think these are so helpful tests to know what we're going to do next for this patient. So using pH and glucose, we don't necessarily even have to wait for the gram standard culture, and we can get these a lot quicker to sort of define if this is a simple paranormonic effusion, a complicated paranormonic effusion, or in sort of like the worst cases of this, an empyema. So once we have a high suspicion, these are always tests that I'm sort of going to order. Um, so for the pH, you know, a normal plural pH should be around 7.4 to 7.6. It's usually a little bit more uh, alkalemic than we would see in, a, in our serum. Uh, but less than 7.3, we think is certainly abnormal. And probably this happens because you have cells in that space that are sort of eating up the glucose that we're going to talk about in a second, uh, and they end up producing uh, acido, uh, acidotic results that uh, lower our pH overall. If the pH is less than 7.2, then I think of this already sort of as an as a empyema, and in the setting of a recent pneumonia, I'm going to manage this like a, a complicated pyrenomonic confusion or empyema. Uh, the lower that pH, the more concerned I am. So I've had some really bad ones where sort of pus is coming out, which is the formal definition of empyema, and the pH could be less than 7 or even 6.9. The one thing I'll say here that can throw you off is that if it's a malignant effusion or a rheumatoid effusion with lots of cells and it's been sitting there for a while, sometimes the pH can be lower than 7.2 just because it's been around and the cells are sitting there. So you do always have to still use your clinical correlation. The tougher part is when the pH is sort of between that 7.2 and 7.3 range, um, you know, not quite into where I'm saying it's definitely an empyema, but I think of this more as a complicated paranormonic effusion, something that still probably requires some drainage uh, and, and sort of specific management. And this can also be seen this mild level with some other conditions I talked about that sort of lead to more cells in the pleural fluid, uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, chronic infections like TB, sometimes a, a relatively newer malignancy, uh, even sort of a small esophageal perforations can sort of lead to that. So that area uh, is a little bit less conclusive. 
The next thing I also look at with this is sort of the glucose. And I will say that your serum glucose affects your pleural glucose. So we use some rough numbers, but we also should think about the ratio. Um, so a glucose that's less than 60 or less than 50% of the serum glucose is definitely a sign to me that this is a complicated paranormonic fusion or empyema. Again, just that there are a lot of cells there, they're eating up the glucose. And while this can be seen in other inflammatory or malignant fusions, you know, very low glucoses really make me worried about infectious process, active infectious process in that plural, plural space. And then finally, I think the LDH is just uh, another thing I should mention, even though we were talking about pH and glucose, you know, LDH is greater than a thousand are concerning to me, either for malignancy or infection. Um, you know, so when an LDH comes back that high, those are the first two things in my differential that I have to start uh, uh, ruling out. So sounds like we have a, a pretty concerning uh, tap in this case. We have a low pH, a high LDH, 90% PMNs, and lots of cells. Uh, Mira, can you tell us uh, what happened with this patient? The cultures end up growing strap metis. Patient undergoes chest tube placement for a attempted drainage and source control of his newly diagnosed empyema. Thanks so much, Mira. Now we've gone through a few cases looking at three common causes of pleural effusion and what tests are needed to help work them up. So we discuss a transudative effusion in the setting of heart and valvular failure. Our second case discussed a newly diagnosed lung cancer in the setting of a lymphocytic predominant unilateral effusion. And Mira, as you mentioned in our last case, we have findings suggestive of an empyema of a strep mitis in the setting of a new unilateral effusion in a patient recently diagnosed with pneumonia. As Firth mentioned earlier, um, spoiler alert, we do have an upcoming episode with experts David Feller-Kotman and Mahir Parikh, where we'll go over all you need to know for perineumonic effusions, as well as empyema, so stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. But before we end our amazing episode today, I think there are a few other pearls to discuss on labs that we can order based on clinical context and differential, as well as pretest probability for a suspected effusion. Aline already mentioned checking for triglycerides if concerned about a chylothorax, and we would be looking for a number greater than 110 in this setting. I would also check an amylase if uh, concerned about a pancreatic or esophageal etiology, and if high, this can confirm that. We talked a bit about TB earlier. In addition to sending the AFB culture, you can check a, an adenosine deaminase from the pleural fluid. Firth mentioned checking a pleural hematocrit if concerned about a hemothorax, and you'd be looking for a pleural fluid hematocrit greater than 50% of serum hematocrit. And one last pearl for now is checking a pleural to serum creatinine ratio if concerned about a urinothorax in the setting of a new effusion with a history of recent urologic or gynecologic surgery. This has been a fantastic last hour sort of going through the overview of effusions, and we're definitely going to pursue some other episodes to talk more about specific pleural diseases. There's huge topics within each of these of how you manage a malignant pleural fusion, how you manage an empyema. Uh, but I think this was a great start to it. And so Mira and Eileen, thank you so much for taking us through it. We like to end every episode with a takeaway point. Uh, what's your takeaway, Mira? My takeaway is new unilateral pleural effusion of unclear etiology if it were in sampling, should include the initial testing, cell count and diff, cultures, total protein, LDH, glucose, and pH. And if I'm worried about malignancy, I'll also add cytology. Great. Eileen, anything that we should take away? My takeaway is also from Mira. I really liked her point about the sensitivity versus specificity of the lights criteria and using tests like the serum pleural albumin gradient, the serum pleural protein gradient, and the total pro pleural protein fluid that can 
help us distinguish between an exudate and a pseudo exudate. Amazing. Monty, what about you? Thanks, Verf. Yeah, I think the four P's that you mentioned when discussing the risk and benefits of doing a thoracentesis resonated with me. So again, the first P was pneumothorax. The second P was procedure failure, potentially dry tap. Three is um, being cognizant of any pain associated with the procedure. And four, I know you said less likely to occur, um, but re-expansion pulmonary edema could be one that we should consider. And I think you're going to be thinking of the fifth P. We need to think of another P um, that can go with hemorrhage. So um, I'm sure we'll brainstorm on that on on one of our days um, off together. So stay tuned for that. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. The script was written by Mira John and Eileen Lynch and edited and produced by uh, myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers, and we will see you guys next time. Have a good one.